Late last year, Shoreline Biosciences announced a $140 million investment to fuel its effort to make off-the-shelf natural killer cell therapies a reality. It's an awfully big dose of confidence in a company that was just launched in 2020. I'm Matt Piller, and on today's episode of the Business of Biotech, we'll be spending some time with Dr. Cleanthus Xanthopoulos, the CEO at Shoreline, a serial biotech entrepreneur and a board member who's built his business career on the back of his chops as an academic. Dr. Xanthopoulos earned his MSc in microbiology and immunology and his PhD in molecular biology from the University of Stockholm before doing postgrad work as a fellow in cell and molecular biology at Rockefeller University. Then he served as an associate professor of molecular biology and genetics at the Karolinska Institute. He founded his first company, Anadis Pharma, in 2000 and sold it to Roche six years later. His past and present board appointments include Connect Biopharma, Stork Capital, Senti Labs, which he also founded, Zosana Pharma, Apricus, Bionis, Biocom, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization that we know and love as Bio, and a few more that I'd have even more trouble pronouncing. He's also been general partner at the VC firm Enterprise Partners, founding president and CEO of Regulus Therapeutics, and CEO of Eras, or Eras or AB. Dr. Xanthopoulos, it takes a lot of long power to get through the highlights of your resume. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. <clears throat> uh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with a little bit more about you, and I'm I'm gonna kind of dig back a ways uh, in, into the into the history of your career. But you, as I said, began as a, an academic studying and teaching molecular biology and immunology, and you did that for quite some time before you founded your first company. And uh, it's it's not a completely novel thing. We see folks from academia move over to industry all the time, but I'm always interested in the motivation behind that move. You had a, a pretty cool position, I'm sure, and enjoyed the teaching aspect. What was it, though, that sort of uh, set the entrepreneurial journey in motion? Yeah, um, very, very good question. Perhaps what's not evident from... Uh, from my bio is that uh, that entrepreneurial spirit, I, um, I I think in most people is genetically imprinted. You're mm -hmm. born with it or you're not. Um, and I was very fortunate to have that entrepreneurial spirit that was cultivated by my environment, my, my parents who were entrepreneurs. Um, and so I've, throughout my academic career, which was enormously fun and productive, um, I've always been living a parallel life, um, being entrepreneur, uh, investing, starting small um, companies. And at the time I was uh, a faculty at the Karolinska, I was involved uh, intimately on uh, building the technology transfer office. That gave me the chance to really meaningfully start looking at uh, good technologies from the Karolinska that we could potentially support and sponsor out building businesses around it. So um, it is not, um, as I said, obvious from, from the bio, but I have been 
uh, doing this and looking for the right opportunity to balance the two because science is always so fascinating. But it came a point um, around 90, in the late 90s, 1990s, that um, I had to make a decision and moved completely to biotech. And, and that's what brought me to San Diego, a company called Aurora Biosciences recruited me out of the National Institute of Health, where I was participating in the Human Genome Project. And, and I joined um, I joined the company. That was a lot of fun for three years. We ended up, um, Aurora was ended up being sold to Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And that sparked my um, desire to do that again and again and, and build companies based on top-notch science that you can eventually monetize by creating some transformative drugs. Yeah, yeah. I uh, Which, you know, that opens up a, a host of questions, a host of follow-up questions. And one, one I'm going to throw at you is if you looked at, you know, you, you just mentioned the, that, that, that sort of served as the genesis of your desire to uh, invest in and, and lead companies that have top-notch science. If you look across uh, the the board, is there a common thread that's appealing to you in terms of what you consider top notch science that you want to pursue? Like, what what can you can you kind of put your finger on something that some commonality among them all? Yeah, it is always pushing the frontiers of science and medicine to create new new drugs. Whether this is uh, <clears throat> looking with novel ways to probe the human genome, which is something we're doing at Aurora with some very, very innovative, um, <clears throat> essentially ways of visualizing, literally visualizing genes in living um, uh, in living cells that ultimately led to development of technologies to do high throughput screening and ion channel screening, which as you know, it ended up being the basis of the franchise for cystic fibrosis that Aurora had and now belongs to Vertex following the acquisition. Mm-hmm. Or uh, at the forefront of hepatitis C, antivirals, which is what we did at, at Anadis, or looking at um, microRNAs, uh, small non-translated RNAs that regulate the translational pace of, of genes, um, and how you take each one of these cutting-edge um, frontiers of science and work hard to translate it in a very high risk, high reward kind of a scenario. There are other people that are developing smart drugs that are aimed to be best in class, meaning you go after a novel biology, novel target, and develop a a new chemical entity or a new antibody towards a validated target. And that's a very solid approach. I've always been attracted to a step beyond that when you're actually probing the biology and probing it with new tools, whether those are small molecules, RNA therapeutics, antibodies, and now cell therapy. Although Soreline is a very interesting example where you actually are a hybrid between those two different scenarios. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that uh, uh, shortly. But as I mentioned from the outset, uh, Shoreline was founded just, just a couple of years ago. Um, Tell us, tell us the genesis story of that. How did how did Shoreline come to pass, and how did you become its CEO? What was it? What was the what were the foundations? So one one huge benefit one has been in in, in bioding industry now uh, for quite some time is that a, 
a really wonderful network of extremely smart visionary individuals um, that continue to passionate discuss new ideas and, and new technologies. And it's in that background that that Shoreline was was essentially began to take shape. Um, a very um, very good friend, uh, Steve Holtzman, somebody that I've known for decades. Um, has been thinking about developmental biology for a long, long time and cell therapy. Um, I was coming from the perspective of what are the new areas of biotech that one could invest and sponsor companies that can open up new ways of practicing medicine and have concluded that cell therapy was one of the handful of, of areas that was very attractive and when the two of, of us started to talk about it, uh, Steve pointed out to Dan Kaufman, a professor here at the uh, University of San Diego, University of California, San Diego. And Dan has been developing a number of wonderful technologies that could be directly applicable to new effector cells. And by new, I mean natural killer cells and macrophages. And so the three of us very quickly got together um, to discuss and understand, and it was purely curiosity and scientific um, curiosity, looking into uh, what kind of technologies Dan was developing. And it wasn't long before we realized that there was a, a very nice basis for an innovative company, particularly when we started to talk and engage additional brilliant people like Bill Sandborn, who now has been, uh, has left academia uh, after being the best recognized KOL in the world in gastroenterology and joined Shoreline as a, as a co-founder and, and now as a full-time chief medical officer. So Bill, Dan, Steve and I um, were brainstorming in early 2020 uh, in the middle of the pandemic. We had a lot of time in our hands doing a lot of Zoom calls. Um, and that's the genesis of, of Shoreline. And we launched the company formally after licensing few key technologies from UCSD that came primarily out of the Kaufman Laboratory. The company was launched um, in June of 2020. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and I want to, I, sh shortly thereafter, right, your 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 investment uh, situation look, looks wonderful. As I mentioned, you're buoyed um, in Q4 2020. So this is this is, uh, you know, this, this, this episode will drop into January, early, early February. So just just a few months ago, $140 million investment in the company on top of existing investments from some, some big names in bio shortly after its founding. Um, and I want to I dwell there for a minute, Cleanthus, and get your, uh, your, I guess, investment philosophy. What's behind your success with investors? Well, like anything else, it's about the quality of the people that uh, you bring together. Um, and then secondary to that is the the strategy that you're going to define, how are you going to utilize the ideas, what, what kind of technologies you're going to put to work to reach what kind of significant inflection point and milestones that are going to drive the buildup of a successful company. And to do that, you have, as I said, to have the, the brain trust, the quality of the people associated with the company, a, a core technology that will allow you to execute on your strategy and be successful, and then, of course, always be um, certain to finance the company with appropriate 
capital to be able to be competitive. So we were very fortunate in on, on multiple fronts. Number one, once we seeded the company and got it going, we immediately attracted the interest of a large number of investors. And as you said, we concluded a, a financing very um, very quickly thereafter um, of about $43 million. While we were doing that, um, companies um, already took a, a notice of, of Shoreline because of, again, the people involved, the reputation and and the technologies we were we had licensed and looking to prosecute. Um, and that led to two wonderful collaborations with Kite, Gilead, and Beijing, respectively. Both of these companies shared our vision of allogeneic immunotherapies that are truly off-the-shelf, standardized, safe, affordable, and effective. Um, and they had come from their perspective where they, they probed the entire landscape and ultimately came to Shoreline and wanted Shoreline to become their preferred partner. So we're extremely happy about that. We were able to build two wonderful collaborations. They brought tremendous amount of capital up front, mm-hmm. over $4 billion in milestones. But importantly, they brought their s- set of skills together. So um, Kite brought us enormous knowledge on chimeric antigen receptor construction, manufacturing, clinical development. Beijing brought global clinical capabilities, clinical development capabilities, and and of course, protein engineering capabilities. So we were really fast forward integrated all of our capabilities. So while we were only a year old company, um, given what we already had accomplished and the plans that we were looking now to enter the clinic um, in at the end of 2022, we're looking as a much more mature company and now have the capital, the technologies and continue to attract wonderful people. So that validation of two very smart companies coming and paying a lot of money to be part of our vision also induced interest from a number of investors. And although in the second half of, of this year, as we all know, the market turned um, <clears throat> ugly on biotech, uh, we were able to continue very productive conversations with investors. We ended up um, oversubscribing. We were going to raise seventy. $5 million ended up having demand for almost three times as much um, and compromised to raise 140 with some outstanding quality investors, including participation of our two strategic partners, Kite and Beijing. Yeah. Yeah, that's outstanding. And, you know, you mentioned the markets turning ugly. And and I wanted to ask you about that because I, you know, I, um, on a recent episode of this show, I had a conversation with uh, one of my frequent guests, Alan Shaw, about performance, biotech, you know, bio, biotech IPO performance in particular yep. in 2020 versus 2021. And, you know, everyone knows in 2020, well, for the past 10 years, there's been a lot of money available. You know, it's not, I don't want, I don't want to minimize the effort, but it's not all that difficult to find money to fund your company. Um, and leading into 2021, you know, the returns, the IPOs on those investments were near 40%. Uh, I'm sorry, in 2020. In 2021, 
there were more IPOs, another record year for IPOs, but those returns were like 5%. So the, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the money pouring into the emerging biotech scene and the performance of those new companies receiving all that funding were a little bit imbalanced. Um, so I'm curious, as a company who has received a, a, a substantial amount of funding uh, in 2021, what do you, you know, what do you as the leader of that company consider the keys to de-risking those investments and building a plan for performance on those investments, outperforming that five percent return we saw last year? Yeah, it's so, a bit, I know, I know it's a, I know it's a big, big question, Clint. Yeah. I use a lot of words. Yeah, no, uh, look, it, it's a, also a very good question uh, because what I find, particularly when, when I look back in 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 what I was lucky to do that turned out to be successful and the mistakes I made, you always have to plan um, for all different scenarios, right? And as I said, it's it's continue to recruit and retain your top talent, stick to your strategy, uh, and strategies define as what, what you're going to do over the next three to five years, and make sure you you find opportunities to capitalize the company always at the right time. And as everyone knows, the best time to raise money is when you have money, right? So all of this need to, to come together. So for us, um, you know, we're now very fortunate to have several years of, of, of runway. So for us, it's about what is our five-year plan? How does the company look five years from now? And what do we need to do to get to that point, assuming that our goals are are agreeable and meet the expectations that we have against ourselves and against the, uh, the expectations of our shareholders. And then execute on that strategy. So the immediate plan is to take this wonderful platform into the clinic, and that will start at the end of next year. Starting then in 2023, we're looking at an amazing cadence of one to two INDs per year. And all of these to ultimately coming to, in, by 24, 25, looking at about seven clinical programs that the company is going to be, is going to be driving. Mm-hmm. That's a huge order. And had it been something outside of cell therapy, you would, you would think I'm, I'm crazy talking because uh, you can't predict seven good clinical candidates if you were working with small molecules. But with cell therapy, you can because you can serially build the kind of cells that you want to use, particularly if you focus on what we think is a game changer and the winner in the space on allogeneic pluripotent stem cell-based therapies. Because by using pluripotent stem cells as the start, we take the single universal donor, we can make serial manipulations on those donors. And then we can build out of that. We don't need to, to, to start from the beginning, right? Certain modifications have been done. They're now in our freezers. And that becomes the basis of building the third, the fourth, and the fifth wave of products. That's why we think uh, we have a very good chance of, of executing on our strategy and, and moving forward. And what we have done is we've de-risked the financial, um, the financial potential risk that exists there by 
raising so much capital or receiving capital upfront from our partners. So we have almost $300 million. Um, we think we can reach some very significant inflection points, um, clinical inflection points to prove our platform and bring us to the next stage of our of our company's development. Ultimately, we want to be a, a category leader. Ultimately, we want to build a legacy company. The definition of that in my mind is that we have created drugs that are transformative. And that's going to take us some time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's our goal. And at the same time, we're going to be opportunistic. We have money. And as I said, the best time to raise capital is when you have capital. So if the opportunity is there, we're going to we're going to um, raise additional capital uh, in accordance with our expectations and increasing shareholder value. The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's uh, It's never... Uh, that, that's a, that's a spigot you never want to shut off for sure. Especially when the, the intentions are as bold as they are at, at shoreline. When I say bold, I, you know, I point to the fact that, um, a lot of people are talking about the potential to improve accessibility and broaden the application of cell therapies, uh, allogeneic, uh, pluripotent stem cell, uh, approaches. Uh, obviously you're not the only company that's uh, pursuing that approach, um, and yet the market opportunity remains because it's a nut that hasn't necessarily been, been cracked yet. So what stands in the way? What, what are the challenges uh, generally that stand in the way from in the way of the industry and shoreline from achieving the goal? Look, we uh, in earnest, um, immunotherapies started about 10, 12 years ago. Kite and Juno pioneered the way. Today, we have five drugs that have been approved since 2017, mm -hmm. um, but they have underperformed from the market perspective uh, for one reason and one reason only. It's accessibility to patients, right? And autologous cannot be the long-term game here. You can't rely on the fact that you're going to find a patient, that the patient will have three to four weeks to live while you're doing the manipulations, or that you'll be able to... Um, to withdraw from that patient sufficient amount of cells to start the expansion and manipulation, and then to be faced with all the potential side effects that we're seeing with, with the CAR-T cell therapies. And that mm -hmm. has restricted the treatments in very advanced, typically academic hospitals, next to ICUs, because you expect a 10, 20 or so percent to have some severe uh, side effects, primarily cytokine release syndrome or, or neuro, neurological um, uh, side, side effects. Our vision with allogeneic based on pluripotent stem is completely different. It is truly the off the self. So we have these drugs 
in vials in our freezers. We like them to be administered in community hospital settings. So the accessibility increases logarithmically. Why? A, because it's, they're standardized. We don't need to do that on a patient per patient and all the drawbacks that I just described. But also, particularly with NK cells, we now have enough clinical experience with almost four or 500 patients have been treating now collectively with NK cells that we know they're significantly safer than the, the CAR-Ts. We don't see CRS of any meaningful uh, significance. We don't see any neurological um, disorders. We don't see any graft versus host. So really they can be considered outpatient. And if we are successful, then they are used in an outpatient setting. And if that's the case, now you really can have access to most, if not all of the patients. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. going to be the game changer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the advantages of that approach is to your point, as you said, accessibility um, and on a broader scale. And so much of the cell therapy ecosystem uh, today is focused on finding big clinical successes in small patient populations for ultra rare diseases, for instance. What's the, and, and there's a, you know, the, the business case for that approach has been made. It's very expensive, uh, and yet it's desirable for, for many cell therapy companies to pursue. What is the business case for chasing success on a broader scale? And this will open up the conversation a bit into the indications that I think you, you intend to, to pursue, but what, what's the business case for broadening, broadening that accessibility? Yeah, we, we, we take a, an approach that um, evaluates multiple factors for the indications we're focusing on. Mm-hmm. Um, unmet medical need, you know, probability of success based on our technology and the effector cells that we're using. Okay. Um, affordability of the drugs that we're going to be uh, developing and competitive landscape. When we look back um, and projecting our next five years, and, and look at uh, the totality of all the different cell therapy indications, it's very easy to say, you know, we've had a lot of successes in, with CAR-Ts in hematological tumors with the, you know, with the side effects and the drawbacks that we discussed. Um, very little yet in solid tumors. So our portfolio is balanced between the two. So we look at both blood tumors and solid tumors. Um, particularly with Beijing, uh, we share a vision of really broadening the indications to reach uh, global dimensions, not just small orphan subpopulations. So um, we are looking from that lens, and as such, we, we're going to be addressing some very significant and high-incident tumors. Okay. And can, can you, can you share? I know it's early. I know it's early. I know, like I said, uh, just found it a couple of years ago, uh, pipeline yeah. and development. Can you share any of the indications you plan to yeah. pursue initially? Uh, yeah, I think um, one that we have uh, advertised as, um, as focus for, uh, for shoreline zone programs is a, a T-cell lymphoma program, as well as a, a AML, acumyeloid leukemia program. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those, those would be the two programs that Shorelines brings to the clinic, uh, which we own um, 100%. 
Um, with Kite, I think uh, it's very easy to figure out indications. We said hematological uh, tumors. And of course, Kite has, in the past 10 years or so, has developed an amazing expertise in, in certain hematological tumors. So we're looking now to be in that indication by coming in with a different effector cell in natural killer versus T-cells. And mm-hmm. with Bayes in the collaboration has both uh, blood uh, tumors and solid tumors. We haven't fully disclosed the indications yet. Okay. All right, great. What, uh, what's, it, it, what's the next big step? for you as leader at, at shoreline. Um, again, and I, and I want to just clarify before, before you answer that one, I just want to clarify. So you, uh, considering that this episode will air in January, early February, 2022, you, your plan is to be in the clinic by, by the end of 2022. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. All right. So, so maybe I just answered the question for you. (laughs) Next big step, get into the clinic. It is exactly. We are paving the road to the clinic. Um, And um, the amazing thing with the way we build our portfolio, uh, both strategically and because we can support it with the technology uh, that we have, is that once we get into the clinic at the end of 2022 and then starting 23, you're going to see a steady cadence of new programs entering the clinic. Uh, at a frequency of about one to two per year. Mm. Right? That's how you can get very quickly to many programs by 24, 25. That would be a combination of Shoreline Zone and Shorelines uh, and um, our two partners program. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the big goal. It's the road to the clinic. Um, we continue to expand the organization, bringing in talent that's going to help us um, now, so we are focusing on expanding not only our wonderful R&D bases, but also now regulatory, CMC, clinical operations, and very aggressively thinking of manufacturing because we're planning for success. Mm-hmm. Uh, follow on to that. As you, as you look at, at clinical supply and manufacturing down the road, um, is, is that something you'll lean on your partners uh, for assistance with? Are you ha- handling that internally? Will you be looking to, to outsource clinical supply and, and beyond? Yeah, um, so we have a, a hybrid approach here in, in, a, in a sequential manner. What we're doing is we have identified some preferred partners in <clears throat> Dendrion, Cirrusinai, and Advanced Health Laboratory. Uh, to work together to say, uh, to supply us with clinical material for the next two to three years, while at the same time we're building something I think very unique. We call we call that smart manufacturing, um, where we're introducing new concepts um, into the cell therapy manufacturing process based on data analytics and automation. We plan to build our own manufacturing capabilities and be up and running in, in a couple of years from now. Uh, so that a big part of, of the use of proceeds for the last round uh, was to focus on, on that aspect. Um, and, and so we both create a safety by working with people who are experts in, in cell therapy manufacturing and production, but we also moving along and developing our own 
manufacturing capabilities, which we think are going to be very unique. They're going to have very big advantages compared with the standard manufacturing processes of today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, one more question on the partnership angle. So, you know, beyond IP, beyond, you know, intellectual property uh, arrangements and, and sharing data and information and processes and technology, what are those, what does a partnership like like that look like on the day-to-day? I mean, are you working shoulder to shoulder with, say, scientists at, at, at Kite Gilead, um, you know, in, in, in the, in the uh, Clinic or not clinical, but uh, development environment. Um, give give us some flavor for that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's exactly the way productive collaborations work, right? And it's very very important to put the effort not only scientifically to communicate with with your partner, but also to align in terms of values and and cultural unity. Right, mm. half of the collaborations, and I've been involved in dozens and dozens of them in in my career, um, are known to fail, not necessarily for technical reasons, but very often the two teams have different objectives, different philosophies, and that creates a a problem. Um, We're very fortunate to have both Kite and Beijing really sharing that bigger vision. I mentioned in the beginning, they came from that perspective. They had come to the same conclusion and then looked at what is the company we want to work with. And mm-hmm. they came to Shoreline. So our vision is is united. Our um, scientists work very, very close, uh, interacting with each other. And and it's, it's wonderful to see that becoming more and more productive, right? We got to know each other. We need to work together. We need to understand capabilities, responsibilities and accountabilities for each partner and be always open and um, and disclose both the good and the bad. Challenges are going to happen. We're in drug development. You know, we fail more often than we succeed. Yeah. Um, if we don't build that unity and 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 a level of trust, uh, we're not going to be successful. Uh, yeah. But I think we're off to a wonderful start, both with Bayesian and with Kai. Excellent. Well, we'll be following along the journey. Um, checking in on progress. Um, some parting advice. I'd ask you to give some parting advice to our audience, uh, drawing on all your experience, which precedes you as a serial entrepreneur. What leadership advice would you, give, would you be eager to share with our audience around, uh, you know, build, building a, a new or emerging biopharma? It's, it's a situation... Um, as a leader, uh, that requires a lot of different skill sets. Um, very often, when I talk to people who um, ask me the kind of same question, I said, "Be prepared to, um, if you're a, a true entrepreneur starting um, a raw company from ground zero, be prepared to be thinking that in one minute you're talking to the chairman of the board about long-term strategy." and strategic portfolio analysis. And a minute later, you're talking to the plumber because there is a need to repair the laboratory, right? And you've got to be able to do both. The the only advice that I would give is is the one that was given to me and I follow to the T is make sure you identify people that you respect and trust and gain their respect and use them as mentors. 
um, we all need to continue to learn regardless of the stage of, of career, but somebody starting new and wanted to, to be the leader of, of a company, they have tons of things to learn and there's no reason to uh, learn by your own mistakes. Um, be open, be humble, reach out, solicit um, mentorship and advice, listen more than you speak, and um, you'll be successful. I like it. I like it. Don't don't stop learning. And we've certainly learned a lot from you uh, on this conversation, Cleanthus. So thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. Oh, it's our pleasure. And like I said, we hope to have you back as we as we follow along on the journey with Shoreline Biosciences. Now, before I sign off, I, I know that that I've been I've been doing my best with your name, but I want our audience to hear the 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 the, the, the uh, correct pronunciation. Can, can you yeah. give it to us? I'm torturing you with an ancient Greek name, so it's not um, it's not very common at all. It's Cleanthes Xanthopoulos. All right, so that's Cleanthes Xanthopoulos. That's the best I can do. Very good. Very I'm good. Matt Pillar. This is the business of biotech. We are produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva. Check out Cytiva's Biotech Accelerator, built for leaders of new and emerging biotech at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Check us out. Sign up for my newsletter, bioprocessonline.com. And if you're enjoying the pod, please subscribe. Slide all the way to the right. Give us a five-star review. And as always, thank you for listening. Awesome.